A recent report compiled by the Home and Leisure Accident Surveillance System revealed that most of us are in more danger than we think most of the time. 37 people in the year hurt themselves with teapot warmers, which is an increase of 17 on the year before. Trouser injuries also jumped, rising to 5,137 to 5,945. Victims included a 29-year-old woman who burnt herself ironing her trousers whilst they were still on. (laughs) Hospital cases caused by socks and tight injuries, ladies be careful, rose by nearly 1,000 to 10,773. 3,421 people were injured by closed baskets, 146 by bread bins, and 329 people suffered toilet roll-related injuries. (laughs) And remember, you heard it here first. Beanbag injuries climbed from 957 to 1,317, making them four times as dangerous as meat cleavers. You'll be glad to hear that the trustees had an emergency meeting last night and all beanbags have been removed from the Burlington youth rooms. We're oblivious to the trouble that we are in. This world, although those things are ridiculous... This world is in big trouble. We are in a right mess. And today we're going to think about how the cross reveals the mess that we are in and how the cross rescues the messed up. In our series, Believe It, Big Truths About God, we've got to the part of the story where not only has God been <clears throat> excuse me, working uh, in creation, And through history, God, as we talked about last time, became part of the story himself in the incarnation. Today it reaches its unbelievable climax. As if the God of heaven has not identified himself with us enough, the story reaches its shuddering conclusion when God, having lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died. The cross is a terrible thing. Crucifixion is the most barbaric, inhumane, agonizing death ever devised. Developed by the Persians 500 years before Christ and perfected by the Romans, it was eventually outlawed in around 300 AD by Constantine. Such was its indescribable brutality. The word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. A crucified man would die of asphyxiation by lifting the weight of his body pinned in the most sensitive parts of his wrist and feet. He would gain another breath. He would do that in unbearable agony until he could lift his body no more and then suffocate to death. It was the most agonizing death humans have seemed capable of devising. Very occasionally a woman was crucified, usually turned round with her face facing the cross. As even in the midst of their brutality, they realised that even they didn't want to see a woman in such agony. Sometimes naked men would hang on crosses for several days, right through the scorching heat of the day or the cold chill of night, taunted by their accusers. Very often crucifixion was not high up but at eye level. 
so that those that were accusing them and those who had gathered to mock could look into the eyes of the victim on the cross and carry on their taunts. A victim could do nothing to retaliate except fill the air black and blue with cursings or spitting or urinate on those who stood too close, and they did. It was a most disgusting scene. Blood, urine, human excrement covered the ground. There's much more detail, but it's too gross to continue. I have no problem with nice ornamental crosses that we wear around our necks or perfectly, beautifully handcrafted crosses made of wood that adorn our church or our homes or a communion table that's draped in a clean, perfectly pressed cloth with polished silver and served with precision and dignity as long as we remember the cross was nothing like that. If we could do that to Jesus, then that alone reveals the mess we are in. The cross reveals the mess we are in because of what we did. If God became a human being, lived a human life of perfect love and complete goodness, and we human beings killed him in the most brutally agonizing way possible, then we are more twisted than we dare to comprehend. Tom Smale, a Scottish theologian, writes like this. He said, when we get our hands on God, this, talking about the cross, is what we do. When the divine love that we see in Jesus comes, not only do we fail to imitate it, but we turn against it. That's what sin did. That's what sin does. And if we claim to be without sin, the Bible says, ha, good luck, you just deceive yourself. We cannot look at the cross and in any way, shape, or form whatsoever conclude that we're okay. If that's what we did to the love and life that pours from heaven, we're not okay. We know too from a few Sundays ago when we looked at providence that at the same time the cross was very much God's choice. God was fully in control. The cross didn't take him by surprise. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God chose the cross. They did exactly, ultimately, what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. The cross did not take God, or Jesus for that matter, off guard in any way. Jesus says this, you need to understand I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd, he can lay down his life, and he can pick it up again. See what he says a few verses later in John 10. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I am completely in control. I'll lay it down and I pick it up. I lay it down of my own accord and I will pick it up again. That is the authority that I have from my Father. Suddenly, we see here something utterly more remarkable than the realization that we did that to Jesus. More amazing than the choice of Bethlehem for his birth, 
or a manger for his bed, or a peasant community for his social standing, or a hated race for his ethnicity, all those incredible choices Jesus made in coming to earth, more amazing than that was the choice of his death. He chose that cross. The most agonizing, degrading, dehumanizing death ever. Why? Because it was nothing less than that kind of death that could mop up the mess that we'd made. The cross reveals the mess we are in because of what we did, but the cross also reveals the mess we are in because of what He chose to do. This was no game for God. God had been planning the cross since the beginning of time, the Bible tells us. And hours before Jesus' death, there he is in the garden. And for one last moment, he says to his father, if it be possible, please, can we find another way? In all his humanness, Jesus said, Father God, if there be a different way, can we find it now? You need to understand that Father God loved the Son more than you and I have ever loved anybody. The Son loved the Father more than you and I have loved anybody. If love could have found a different way, there in that garden, they would have found it. It was the last thing either of them wanted to do. And the Father said, no. There's no other way. You need to do it all. And the most staggering thing is what Jesus said next. I will take the cup. I will take the cup. Now the trouble is with the New Testament so often, it uses a phrase in the Old Testament that is utterly packed with meaning, but because we don't know our Old Testament like they did in those days, it passes us by. Rabbis would have memorized the whole of the Old Testament. Jesus would have been intimately familiar with the whole of the Old Testament. And when he said the cup, those who knew the Old Testament knew exactly what the cup meant. The cup was the wrath, the anger, the judgment of God. The cup was the fruit of everything that was wrong, everything that was twisted and torn and broken. And Jesus said, I'll take the cup. Every lie, every impure thought, every hateful action, every hurt word, I'll take it. The cup. So much more than the cross, Jesus would carry the weight, the judgment the punishment, the pain, the consequence of the fruit of this world's wickedness. So quite literally, he became sin for us. He took it all. Eclipsing the agony of the lungs and the nails and the complete dehumanizing, completely degrading scene that would evolve in a matter of hours. The agony for Jesus was this. Only after hanging for six hours in excruciating agony, both external and internal. Only after carrying the weight of the world that would crush his soul. Only then would God say, that's enough to mop up the mess that we'd made. And then that heart-wrenching cry of loneliness. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? It was what Jesus feared more than anything else. Father, where are you? Who am I now? Where am I? 
The despair for Jesus, we must understand, darker than the sky. The two, who had always been one since eternity, were suddenly wrenched apart and were two. They'd never been two. Jesus always got with God and now without him. The Trinity dismantled, the Godhead disjointed, the unity dissolved. Only that was enough for the mess that we've made. Only then could Jesus, after he'd taken the cup, after everything that was against God, after every degrading, dehumanizing, destructive, destroying thing that fills this world, after taking it all, only then he cried, it is finished. Dying man speaks with a whimper. Jesus said it with a shout because it was over. His work was done and he breathed his last. The cross reveals the mess we are in because of what he did. That's what it took to put things right. If God needed to die that kind of death, there must be a lot wrong with us, don't you think? One night we were up through the small hours with one of our children in agony with their stomach. After a period of time without it debating, we called the doctor. The doctor came, and the doctor may well have said, just a stomach bug. Try and get some sleep. You'll probably feel better in the morning. But this time, no. Within minutes, he was on the phone. Within 30 minutes, I was in an ambulance with my daughter on the way to hospital. The response of the doctor revealed the seriousness of the condition. The fact that the cross was God's response to human sickness reveals exactly how sick we are. Our sickness, more profound, more intractable, more fatal than we ever imagined. And it's personal. I have to say it's personal. It's not just the mess we're in. It's the mess you are in. And the mess I am in. We can act like it's everybody else's mess. But the Bible says it isn't. We can act like it's everybody else's fault. But the Bible says it isn't. We can act like the blame should be shifted. We've been passing the blame ever since Adam and Eve started it there in the garden. But the Bible says very simply, if you say you're not part of the problem, if you claim to be without this sin that put Jesus on the cross, you're a fool, you deceive yourself, you live in utter deception, you've got no idea which way's up, you're in such a mess, if you can't see this, you're in such a muddle that you don't even know what's true anymore. The Bible says this is true. This is it. That if you say you've got no part in this, that somehow you're above this mess that's been made, you are deceiving only yourself. The cross reveals the mess we're in, firstly because of what we did to him, secondly because of what he knew he had to come and do. Secondly, the cross rejects the idea of just muddling along. The world over we've muddled along, haven't we? with our own means and methods to sort out the mess. Much of liberalism would teach us if only we uh, develop through education, we can cure our own malaise. Marxism advocates a revolutionary solution. Many ethical traditions advocate a moral solution. Many religions offer an escapist solution. Capitalism offers an economic form of Darwinism as a solution for the Malays. And many and many, although less than they used to, are looking for a scientific solution. If only we work harder and longer and stronger. If only we have a bit more time and we have a few more breakthroughs and we make a few more advances, then humanity will clear up the mess 
that humanity has made. No. The Bible says in all these things, in the end, whatever fancy name you put on it, whatever university professors will talk about it, in the end, it's just another human being muddling along. There's a way that seems right to a man. And there are as many ways as there are as many men and women. But in the end, they lead to death. All our good ideas are just muddling. We can't clear up the mess by ourselves and for several millennia of chaos in our stubbornness we still strive as independently as ever. We'll sort this out. I'll muddle through. Hopefully I'll make it in the end. I'll do it myself. I have a three-year-old that says, frequently, I'll do it myself. As the tomato sauce goes all over the floor. I'll do it myself as the full jug of apple juice goes all over the dinner. He gets it from his granddad. (laughs) My dad would always have a go. Dad, if you're listening to the podcast in a few weeks' time, God bless you and forgive me. My dad would always have a go himself. In fact, whenever we'd get someone come to the house to fix a job, they'd always say, cool, who's been messing with that? And we'd all just look at each other. I loved him for it. It drove my mum crackers. One day I remember coming home and in the front of my mum and dad's house are these massive, uh, uh, it's not a bay window because it's straight, but maybe that's still a bay, is it? I don't know. Huge windows at the front of the house uh, before the new UPVC type double glazing. So old style double glazing. And for some reason, probably because it was old style, it wasn't working anymore. I don't know what quite was wrong with it. But I remember this bit. I remember coming home and discovering that my dad was taking these windows out to fix them. As if he had a clue, one iota, what to do or how to fix it. And at that moment, I did not care less that we would probably spend the next week with rain and wind pouring in through our lounge. It was brilliant to see my mum's face as we walked up the road. And there was the window in my dad's hand, you know. I'll muddle on. I'll fix it. I'll sort it out. You've heard me say How hard can it be? And we live like that, don't we? How hard can it be? Hey, too hard. That's how hard. How big is the muddle? Too much. The cross rejects any muddling along. If we could muddle our way out of the mess, if we could pull ourselves up out of the problem, Jesus would not have come and he certainly would not have died. It broke God's heart. Remember how much the Father loves the Son and how much the Son loves the Father. They never would have done it if we could have muddled out by ourselves. The point is he came because we couldn't. Because all our human striving, all our religious or secular attempts to sort out the mess is in the end muddling along. There are many ways that seem so right to a man but in the end, they all end up the same way. They lead to death. The root of our mess is not educational, it's not social, it's not moral, it's not metaphysical, it's not economic or scientific. These are just symptoms. The root of our condition is alienation. We are alienated from the life giver. We have abandoned the lover of the universe, capital L, and we've walked out on the Lord, and we can do nothing to get back. What a mess ensued when Adam and Eve left the garden. How many times did they pound on the gates of the Garden of Eden, longing to leave the mess and get back? 
as they toiled in the land that was hard and barren, how they must have wished to get back. As they struggled to get on with each other, how they must have longed to get back. As they watched the agony of Cain, their son Cain, killing their other son, his brother Abel, how they must have longed to get back. As Adam buried Eve, or when Eve buried Adam, what a mess this perfect garden had become. And they must have longed with all their heart to get back. And we've been longing since. But we can't. We can't. The whole point of the cross is that we can't get back. Christ died. Why? For sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you back. Because you can't do it by yourself. That's where we get the word atonement. At one moment. Coming back to God to the life giver, the love of the Lord. We need nothing more than to be at one with the love from which we sprang. We need nothing more than to know what the prodigal knew, to come home and to know the running, embracing, forgiving, accepting, reclothing, celebrating, dancing love of the Father that welcomed him home. And the cross makes that possible. Jesus says, this is it. You can come home. There is a way to the Father. I'm that way. There's no other way. Don't do your muddling along. You will not get there. But there is this way. You can come home. And the cross rejects any idea that we can muddle our way out of the mess. Let's stick with perhaps the prodigal metaphor for a moment. There we are in the mess of the pigsty and the cross opens the gate and leads us towards home. The cross reveals the mess and rejects the muddling. Hey, the cross rescues the messed up. The cross rescues the messed up. Hey, this is a church for the messed up. How at home are you feeling? You should be feeling more at home than you do. Because we're all messed up. The cross rescues the messed up. When Kerry and I were first married... The person that would sit round our meal table the most was Rob Lacey. Rob Lacey was then the, the director, the lead of Trapdoor Theatre Company. And if you can remember Trapdoor Theatre Company, you're showing your age. More recently, Rob started to write his own version of the Bible. You might know it as the Street Bible. What Rob was trying to do was to lift the words of the Bible out of all the familiarity of the words we use meaning that we've lost the meaning so often because we get so familiar with what we read there. And then he did a work, his final work, before tragically he died. His final work was uh, a book of the Gospels. Trying to get rid of the language that you and I gloss over because we don't know the Old Testament as intimately as those first century rabbis and disciples did. And he calls the Gospel the Liberator. And in the Gospel that he wrote... Uh, the paraphrase that he wrote, Jesus is the liberator. And you say, that's weird, that's not in the Bible. That's exactly my point. Because it is absolutely central in the Gospels. But we miss it because the Bible talks about Messiah and we talk about all kinds of things uh, to understand what the word might mean by Messiah. But the real heart of what they wanted, what they expected, what they were living for, what Messiah really means is one that would liberate, that would rescue. Jesus did not come to show us how to live or to feed a few hungry people or to hang out with a few oddballs and homeless guys. Jesus came to rescue us from the mess up that we'd made 
that we couldn't rescue ourselves from. And we are messed up, aren't we? Sin messes us up. Sin makes us dead on the inside. Deep inside. That insecurity, who am I? Sin messes us up deep inside. Sin messes us up because it separates us from the only one that can help us make sense of it all. It separates us from God. Sin messes us up because not only does it cause us to live dead on the inside, but it means that ultimately we will die. The Bible talks about a a death being a complete separation from God and all that is good. The word that the Bible uses to describe what that's like is a word that puts hairs on the back of our neck and sends a shudder down our spine. The Bible says it's hell. That's what it's like to be without God. That's what sin does. That's where sin takes us. That's where we're without God, without being rescued, we're all on our way. But he came. And there in the garden he said, if there's no other way, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make this incredible rescue so that you and I don't need to be dead on the inside anymore, but we can be alive on the inside. That love that makes us sing. As I prayed at the beginning of our service, I remember being in this park and leaping over park benches higher than those pews. Look how short my legs are. I can't leap over those pews, but that night I could because something in my heart made an utter difference when I knew that he loved me. I can be alive on the inside. And I don't have to live this life uh, alienated from my maker, the one who, who gives me love and life, but I can be brought back to God because of the rescue that Jesus has made possible. And instead of facing a life that in the end leads only to complete death, I can know, I can know that this life can get better and better and better and better from glory into glory. I can know that even though outwardly I might be wasting away, nobody comment, but that's what the Bible says, we're all wasting away, yet inwardly I can be renewed until that day I see him and I know for certain and I live in his presence and I'm more alive than I've ever, 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 ever been alive. That's the rescue. Muddle along if you like, but that's the rescue. That's what he came to do. And so the promise, if we, confess, excuse me, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives me and he clears up the mess. Hallelujah. So the cross, you see, reveals the mess. It rejects the muddling along and it rescues the messed up. Sinners messed us up. But some of you here this morning may be more conscious, not of your sin. Maybe you've known the joy and the wonder of Jesus forgiving and cleansing you from your sin a long time ago. And you've lived in the joy of that. But the burden that you carry this morning is for the sins that others have done to you that are messing you up. What about those sins? Jesus rescues you from those as well. The incredible completeness of the cross is that Jesus rescues us not only from our sins that have messed us up, but other people's sins that mess us up. By their words and actions, people have messed you around. What of their sins? What are the defilements some of you feel because others have done disgusting and deplorable things to you? What of those things that you feel? Jesus died to rescue you from those as well. 
The cross is for the sinner and the sinned against. For the perpetrator and the victim. For the abuser and the abused. It wasn't just our sins with their guilt and consequences that he carried on the cross. He took all the pain and sorrow and hurt of those sins against you. And Isaiah put it like this. He took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows when he went to the cross. The sin has caused you, your sin, the sin of others, all of it, nailed to the cross. So whatever it is this morning, whether you've sinned, and you have, and you've never cleared that mess up, today's the day. And if you've lived in this world for more than 10 seconds, you'll know what it means to have other people sin against you and mess you around and mess you up. It's all covered. It's all covered in the cross. Isaiah put it like this, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities or our sins, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. There's nothing that isn't covered. So I'm going to invite you to come in a moment as we sing and as we worship, I'm going to invite you to come to the cross. I dare you to look. And what we said earlier, the crucified men were crucified usually at eye level. You could look into their eyes. I'm going to invite you, if you dare, to look into the eyes of the Jesus who died, who chose to die for you. And I'm asking you, what do you bring as you come to the cross? There in the distance is the weeping and the wailing, the, the hideous scene around the cross. And you know he's there. What, what do you bring? bring your guilt or your shame? Do you bring your life of muddling along? Do you bring the things that others have done to you that have so wounded you and shaped you and, uh, and, and you long to live free? What do you bring as you come? Just be quiet for a moment. I'm asking, I'm asking if you just slip away out of the city... You're not rushing, you're nervous about what you might see. But you've slipped your way outside the city and you're following in a distance and as you look you can see just the tips of the crosses above the crowd. And you remember, you remember he talked about a body being broken and blood being poured out and you don't quite understand but you know it was for you. How close do you dare to come? Many will not make it. They'll turn away. They'll say, that's got nothing to do with me. I'll just muddle along. That's nothing to do with me. I'm not that messed up, really. I'll sort it out. I don't need to go because one day I'll do this and I'll achieve that and things will be better then. No, I urge you, keep walking towards the cross. And suddenly as you walk and you make your way through the crowds, some are weeping, others are just laughing and mocking, no idea. A hush descends as it went dark. And suddenly there, as you keep walking, you stand before the cross. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What do you bring? What do you see that he's already carrying? the wrongs, the hurts, the wounds, 
And unlike every other crucified man, there's no cursing from him. There's no shouting abuse. There's no foul words and foul actions. He seems to take it all. And then he says, Father, forgive. Father, forgive. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as you say to him those things you know you must, what does he whisper to you? As you strain your voice, your ears to hear his quiet dying words, what would he say to you from the cross? He said to one man, surely you will be with me in paradise. He said to others, Father, forgive them. What does he say to you from the cross?